1: Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. That music means Drucker's in the house. David M. Drucker of the Washington Examiner, author of this brand new book, this is the reader's copy of In Trump's Shadow, so it doesn't have the really cool cover, but it was a lot easier to read in paperback and make all my annotated notes. David Drucker, welcome back. Congratulations on the launch of this. It's very good.
2: Thank you, Hugh, and I really appreciate um, the airtime you're giving it. It means a lot.
1: Well, In Trump's Shadow is available to Amazon. I want people to buy it from Amazon so we can drive it up in attention. And we have a lot, plenty of time, so we don't have to rush. I got to say... There's a four-square box in political journalism. People are either analysts or they're reporters, and they're either smart and good at their job or they're bad. Uh, You are in both categories. Sometimes you're an analyst. Most of the times you're a reporter. I do the same, but most of the time I'm an analyst. Rarely am I a reporter. This is such a well-reported book that people I know very well, for example, Tom Cotton, who's been a weekly guest on this show since before he entered Congress, I learned a great deal about Senator Cotton in Trump's shadow, and I, I didn't expect to. You know, I thought I knew everything about the cotton operation, and I don't. I, you know, I'm I'm a friend. I'm just not part of the team, so I'm just I'm just curious. How did how long did it take to get all this stuff out on each of the people that you did a major profile on?
2: Well, Hugh, it was, um, and I appreciate the kind words. It was part of the goal I set out from the beginning was to tell a future oriented story about what 2024 could look like. And I didn't think I could do that without explaining who these contenders were, what they had to offer, where they came from. So even, you know, there are things in the book that are about what happened in the past or happened previously over Trump's presidency and even before. But it was all in the service of explaining who these politicians are, what kind of Republicans they are. And so I just, you know, I did a lot of research I talked to people that know them, and I tried to get as much as I could inside their head. And in fact, that's what I tried to do with former President Donald Trump when I sat down with him in Mar-a-Lago. Um, I just tried to understand him from his point of view. And I and I did that, one, because I think it's uncovered territory, and I'm just simply fascinated by high-level politicians, the way, as a child, I was fascinated by athletes, Um, and automobiles, what it takes to become a major politician in this country, Democrat or Republican. I just – I focus in my career more on Republicans, uh, sort of an accident of of history, if you will. Um, So I I just did the deep dive, and I tried to find out as much relevant information about how they operate, why they operate that way, and how they got here so I could tell the story to a reader who's politically interested but not – doesn't live inside this world the way I do – what these people were all about in a way they would find relevant to them.
1: Books like this got began when Teddy White wrote The Making of the President in 1960. But that was a backwards look. So for the first time, actually, the first couple of chapters of the book that will be written after the 2024 campaign is already out. It's the primary campaign. Now, there's always the obligatory section in books that look back at presidential elections. Of how people car crashed, and how they went over cliffs, and how they built their organization, <laughs> I've just never seen one this early in this detail. Is there any analog to your knowledge?
2: i I'm not aware of one, and in part that's why I was drawn to the the story because I thought it was a story I could tell that others weren't telling. And you know when you're the, when you're a journalist, the reporter part of you is always looking for a story that hasn't been told. You, it becomes it's sort of a high in terms of this idea of scooping and and you're right to describe me as an analyst and a reporter and i really got into this more to analyze the news and explain the news more than reported but what i found as a journalist is that there's a there's a sugar high you get when you can scoop and come up with something people haven't seen and heard before and it occurred to me late in 2019 after i'd written a few stories about different prospective 2024 contenders who were already preparing for 2024, even before Donald Trump had run for re-election? whether he was gonna win or lose, obviously we didn't know, they were already working on 2024. And I said to myself, that's really interesting and kind of unusual because usually when you're in a party where the incumbent president is of your party, you wait for the reelect. And if they win, if they lose too bad, if they win great, but the day after the reelect, you're free. It's like in, in etiquette, In terms of etiquette you're free to then look out for yourself and focus on your future they were already planning for the future even though they were still helping trump and they you know i mean i write about vice president mike pence nobody helped donald trump more than pence uh, just by the nature that that he was second in command Uh, but they were all working on 2024 very early and i just found that to be very fascinating
1: Yeah, let me, let me try and illustrate to people what they get from In Trump's Shadow. We got to say it seven times because In Trump's Shadow is a book you need to buy and you got to hear the title seven times, In Trump's Shadow in every segment. Uh, three names, Jeff Rowe, Brett O'Donnell, and, um, oh, I know, I can't remember the third one I was going to use. Um, oh, well, uh, Jeff Rowe, Brett O'Donnell, I was going to use one. uh, Oh, Mark Short. Those are three names that I know, know, unless you read this book, most of the audience will not know what any of those three guys do or for whom do they do it or why O'Donnell's got the most interesting situation. Why don't you use those <laughs> three names to illustrate what they're going to find? Because I found anecdotes about each of these guys, and I know them all. Uh, I've talked to them. All. I don't know Mark very well. I've just talked to him. But I know Brad, I know Jeff, and, and, and I learn stuff. Tell people about him.
2: Yeah, so I'll go in alphabetical order, so I'm not picking favorites here. Uh, Brett O'Donnell uh, is better known in Republican circles as the sort of master debate coach, right? So whoever the Republican nominee is over the past 20 years or so, somewhere in there, he's the guy when it's time for the big three debates you bring in as a debate coach. Um, although he although he has a consulting business and he has various clients, uh, you know, Republicans that are elected to the House and the Senate. Uh, he advises uh, Jim Banks, RSC chairman. He he advises some Republican senators. He also happens to advise in terms of communications, both Tom Cotton and Mike Pompeo. And so he his nexus there is of two friends who could end up running against each other in a Republican primary in 2024. In fact, Mike Pompeo ended up tapping Brett O'Donnell for some communications advisory work at the recommendation of Tom Cotton. And so he is sort of integral to those two operations. Uh, Jeff Rowe was the campaign manager for Ted Cruz in 2016. Jeff Rowe, I'm pretty sure, uh, is living full time now in the Houston area, not far from Ted Cruz, but he's a Missouri guy. Uh, Originally, he's got a lot of clients uh, right now, including Glenn Youngkin, who could be headed towards uh, being elected the next governor of Virginia early next month. Um, he's got a horse in the Missouri Senate race, Eric Schmidt, the state attorney general. Jeff Rowe is sort of the orchestrator uh, and the operator the, behind the Cruz 2024 campaign in much the same way he was the 2016 campaign. He's he's savvy. He's sort of a master of the dark arts, um, and he's an interesting character in his own right. If if like me, you're just fascinated by high level political operators. Mark Short um, was the final uh, Chief of Staff to Vice President Mike Pence in the white in the West Wing, uh, what I like to tell people about Mike Pence and this relates to short is that you know mike pence 's fa- favorite slogan is i 'm a conservative, but i 'm not angry about it, and he seems like he 's the anti Trump in the terms of his personality, genial and mild mannered and midwestern but Mike Pence is no dummy and he 's not a shrinking violet and it 's reflected in the fact that he has a team of sharks around him. that he brought into the Trump campaign when he was tapped for vice president in 2016 and that have stayed around him ever since. And Mark Short is among those team of sharks. And uh, Mark Short is still uh, working hard on the the former vice president's behalf, and he's one of those people behind the scenes that I think when you're looking at the possibility of a Pence 2024 campaign… It's true. Mike Pence has myriad challenges. And, you know, we could fill a whole show with them, but he has a team of very smart people. And they're there because he wants them there. And I think that says something both about Mark Short, but also about Mike Pence.
1: Now, what I what I wanted to illustrate by those three names and the anecdotes that you tell about them in Trump's shadow is that um, candidates are like NFL quarterbacks. you got to have a quarterback to win in the NFL and the candidates are the quarterback. But you got to have a head coach. you got to listen to your head coach. Now, and you can't head coach two teams. I remember Mike Murphy uh, was torn between Mitt Romney and John McCain When 2008 came around. He just, he waved out. He tapped out of the race. He didn't want to make a choice. <laughs> has Brett made a choice? Uh,
2: not to my knowledge. and I, I don't think, think he has. Yeah, right. I just. And, and not, not according to my latest reporting. I haven't asked him that question directly, uh, at least not recently. And I think that, you know, Brett right now can afford to wait and see what actually happens, who actually gets in, who doesn't get in. Uh, One of the best things you can do in politics is not make any decision you don't have to make Yes. uh, any decision that you're not yet forced to make. Yes, you want to have foresight. Yes, you want to plan. But keep your powder dry as long as you can, uh, because that will serve you well most of the time.
1: Now, let me illustrate what you'll learn uh, before we go to our first break. We have a three-parter day. It's also going to go into the podcast, the interview with Hugh Hewitt. I did not know until I read in Trump's shadow that Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz waged a proxy war in Tennessee in the Senate race that put Bill Haggerty in the Senate. Would you? That's the kind of detail that's in Trump's shadow. I had no idea
2: yeah you know it was it, it was obviously a presidential race here there was so much news flying around there was so much happening in the in the same general election you have this you know this this well before the general election you have this primary in Tennessee ted cruz uh, decided to you know he's more of a team player now than he was in 2016 he tries to be a little less of an instigator inside his own party because he realizes he needs allies. But he, he decided to go out and help the upstart underdog candidate down there, Manny Sethi, uh in the Senate primary. Obviously, Haggerty was endorsed by Lamar Alexander, was endorsed by Donald Trump, uh, was preferred by Mitch McConnell. And not only did Tom Cotton go down to Tennessee, but Tom Cotton has a super PAC and Tom Cotton has a political operation. And he made it available to Haggerty. Um, and Ted Cruz, meanwhile, was traveling all over Tennessee campaigning for CEPI. And Ted Cruz can still uh, draw a good crowd among grassroots conservatives and gin up a lot of excitement. And so they were going toe to toe down there. And it kind of fit. Right. Because Ted Cruz likes these upstart candidates the way he was in 2012 when he first won that Republican primary for Senate in Texas. And, and Tom Cotton has very good, even though he's in some ways a Trump Republican before Trump, it's very well connected in establishment circles and obviously Haggerty is no moderate if you will he's no centrist even though personality wise he's in the Texas tradition of the sort of uh, polite genial ambassador businessman um he's really a part of this new wave i think yesterday on your show you were calling it these combative constitutional conservatives he he at least votes that way in the senate Um, and doesn't mince his words, and and so it was a good fit for Cotton, and it was interesting to watch them go toe-to-toe in that primary.
1: When we come back, we're going to walk through each of the candidates that David Drucker has profiled in depth. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, joined by David Drucker. David M. Drucker's brand new book, In Trump's Shadow, is now out in bookstores everywhere at Amazon.com. It's a deep dive into really the fascinating pre-race as Republicans get their act together Donald Trump has fundamentally changed the party. A lot of the analysis that David offers up is how Donald Trump changed the GOP and how the two camps, and I'll call them Trumpists and McConnellists, um, they're not really in great communication, but there are some people aiming to bridge those two parts of the party. And I want to run through some of them. Um, Tom Cotton is described on page 33 as Trump before Trump. Explain that to the audience, David Drucker.
2: Well, you know, there are two parts to Donald Trump that I wanted to explain in In Trump's Shadow. And one is the attitudinal part of Trump in that Trump is very combative. And one of the things Republican primary, primary voters liked about him in 2016 that they continue to like about him and want from other Republicans is this notion that he will take on anywhere at any time, punch up, punch down, punch sideways. They don't care. Uh, The other part of it is uh, from an agenda and policy perspective. And even look, Trump isn't always true to elements of his own agenda, to immigration and trade. Yes, but not to every element. But before there was Trump, Tom Cotton was a proponent of reducing immigration, legal and illegal, was a proponent of shutting down. Uh, a porous southern border, but in particular was a proponent of reducing the amount of legal immigration, that even if we get our border under control, that doesn't mean, even as President Trump sometimes said, that we should have this big, beautiful door and let everybody in legally. Um, And uh, Tom Cotton also uh, initially at the state level, but even now at the federal level, argued that we should be raising the minimum wage. And this is a, a sort of populist policy. Obviously, Democrats are blanket supporters generally of increasing the minimum wage at the state and federal level. Tom Cotton, for years, supported raising the minimum wage in Arkansas, uh, In the last year um, has signed off on a proposal that would have raised it at the federal level. And for many years, uh, this was just anathema for Republicans. It wasn't necessarily a line you couldn't cross, but Republicans being very business minded and growth oriented. Um, and market oriented didn't want to saddle businesses with an artificially high minimum wage. I've run a business before. I know what that feels like. Um, and so these are some of the areas in which Cotton, um, sort of preceded Trump on a, from the perspective of being a conservative populist. Now, he's plenty combative. This is not to say he doesn't have the other aspect of it, but I was more interested in these particular policy aspects. Um, and the fact that he has a lot of credibility in that area if it's something that is important in 2024.
1: One of the key things is Senator Cotton has never been afraid to be the first in line to a fight, and that is by combative. No. I, don't, I don't mean throwing out mean tweets. I mean being – he fought Jared Kushner over uh, first step, and he lost, but he never stopped fighting it. And he did so without losing the friendship of Jared Kushner or Donald Trump in the course of that long battle, because people understand he operates out of conviction. But I learned some stuff about his political operation from you uh, when, when Amy Coney Barrett was, was nominated. I didn't know that Tom set up a war room on her behalf.
2: Yeah, he did. Uh, you know, this is why, I, I, you know, I think it's very, if you pay attention— and obviously, it's my job to pay attention. It's clear that he's building a political operation for the future. Uh, he set up a war room with a website to try and provide messaging support and give other Republicans messaging advice if they wanted it, for how to um, deal with the fight over the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. Um, he went down to Georgia and was campaigning um, in those special elections, and you know for Kelly Leftler. Would cut ads and say things that he felt might be effective, but might be less effective if she said it. They had become friends after she was appointed to the Senate by Brian Kemp, and so you know, he put his political operation to work for her. He has a super PAC which he can't direct, but that super PAC is run by a former aide who's very uh, talented, who can pay attention to what Tom Cotton says and where he says uh, it. The orga- he can direct the super PAC,
1: yeah. To, the organization you lay out that. in terms of working hard. The three hardest workers are Rick Scott, Mike Pompeo, and Tom Cotton. Uh, Based on your book, Marco Rubio is working pretty hard, too. Nikki Haley doesn't seem to me to have the same kind of operation yet. Ron DeSantis is working pretty hard when you get Phil involved. I mean, there's just so much going on, and we're going to cover some of this in the podcast. So I encourage people to go over to the interview with Hugh Hewitt to hear the rest of this. But what David Drucker does for Tom Cotton, that level of detail. And again, I've had Senator Cotton on this show weekly since before he entered the House of Representatives. And I learned so much from In Trump's Shadow, the same with uh, with Secretary Pompeo, the same with Senator Rubio, the same with Vice President Pence, and a lot about Donald Trump from your interview at mar lago et cetera. Go out and get the book and then go listen to the full podcast, the interview with Hugh Hewitt today. David and I will continue the conversation after the show. I'll be back tomorrow live. I want to thank Adam. I want to thank Dwayne. I want to thank Ben. I also want to thank you for supporting Alliance Defending Freedom. Please head over to the website. Nothing gets done unless we defend the First Amendment. And what we just saw China do, the breaking news, they've taken the Boston Celtics off China television because one Celtic stood up for human rights in China. That's what we're talking about. We are in a second Cold War. More about it tomorrow on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. I'm back now with David Drucker talking about his brand new book, In Trump's Shadow, available at Amazon.com. This is the pot only part of our conversation, David, but I might steal some of it for the radio show tomorrow because I just find <laughs> so much in this book fascinating. I had no idea that Ambassador Kimmett and David Urban were part of Team Pompeo, none. And I see yep. both of those uh, very influential individuals around town often. And I had no idea. And I, you know, I was with Senator Pompeo. Oh, we lost your Skype, but that's OK. We can get back. I was with uh, Secretary Pompeo a week ago today when we're talking. Um, how'd you sluice that out?
2: Uh, just ask questions, you know, um, there's reporting is an art form. I think you've said this before, Hugh, but it's very true. It's a craft. It's an art form. And I just started asking questions. About Mike Pompeo, the interesting thing about Mike Pompeo, and I told him this once, and he gave me his like trademark smirk. He is very private. He does not talk openly about his background. I found the best way to get information about him was to listen to speeches he would give to voters or big groups, because that's where he lets out pieces of himself. Whether he's talking about his his family uh, in Kansas, uh, you know, he grew up in Southern California in Orange County fashioned himself a good basketball player, uh, but he doesn't talk about it all the time. So I had to listen to him give a speech uh, that had happened like nine months before um, I looked into it. And he made this joke that, you know, I wanted to be a, um, I I wanted to be an NBA player for a while and uh, it just wasn't going to happen. And so finally I said, so tell me about playing basketball when you were a kid." And we started talking about the fact that he was a UCLA Bruins fan growing up. And I'm a Bruin, a bitter Bruin diehard, especially in football, because we we can't win anything ever. Um, And so I got him to sort of acknowledge things. But when I said, you know, it's hard to find information on you, he said, yeah, kind of.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Pause there. That's something I learned in Trump's shadow. Now, I know that that secretary Pompeo, I'm not going to be familiar on air. Secretary Pompeo is a Wichita Shocker diehard fan. I know that because Ohio State got beat by the Wichita Shockers in the quarterfinals at the Staples Center at the only time I've gone to an NCAA quarterfinals. And he was jubilant about that. But I did not know that he was a Bruin hardcore guy until I read in Trump's shadow. So when someone can tell me something about someone that I have spent a lot of time with that I don't know, because I'm always asking questions, I'm impressed. I really am impressed. You also got the Wichita story down. You got the Susan Pompeo story down. I've been to one of the Madison dinners. You've got that whole thing down. I mean, you've got the scoops. Let's move on to uh, Vice President Pence, with whom I probably have the least uh, formal association I've known him for decades. Uh, I just don't spend much time with him. I don't know Mark Short at all, except by the phone. Uh, I thought your recounting of his effort to build this this beautiful thing, this beautiful mind of a political operation inside of the White House is very intriguing. I was unaware that was going on because he doesn't really play the talk radio game very much. Uh, Vice President Pence doesn't like to go out and play and talk radio, whereas Cotton, Pompeo, Rubio, Cruz, they're reliable gets. Ron DeSantis and Mike yeah. P- uh, Pence are the opposite. Would you explain that to me, by the way?
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, Secretary Pompeo appears um, on your program and he appeared on my podcast, uh, the same with Senator Cotton, um, the former vice president, interestingly enough, because he spent 10 years as a talk radio host in Indiana, but is just much more cautious with about where and when he, he gives interviews. I don't know if some of that has to do with the fact that um he's a lot closer to things coming directly from inside you know the west wing i don't know if it if it has to do with the fact that as somebody who's experienced in talk radio he's just much more careful about uh how he lets his hair down but he's he in congress as a member of congress he was very press friendly and when i've interviewed him both there and as vice president he knows how to handle himself
1: Oh, you're I never going to find a better is interview. He very cautious. You, you can't break Mike Pence in an interview. You cannot ambush Mike Pence. You can ask him. And same thing, by the way, of all these candidates. I would not hesitate to ask any of these candidates a question about anything because they're prepped. They're ready. They're smart. In fact, the the Harvard and Yale Law School Quartet of Cotton, Pompeo, Cruz, and DeSantis may be the most formidable bed of academic chops that Republicans have mounted since since forever. I mean, we did, when Lincoln dined alone, I guess I can steal from John F. Kennedy about Jefferson. But the, it's going to be a high-end battle intellectually, and they're going to have to play in the world of talk radio. Let's talk a little bit about Senator Rick Scott. You paid him a very high compliment. Um, maybe he doesn't have the most charisma in the room, but he's going to work harder than any. He's not going to be outworked. He will be the equal of anyone working. In this campaign, I think that's the compliment you paid him. And I, I have to tell you, he is disciplined like cotton every month. every I mean, these guys show up because they're not going to miss a chance to get a chance.
2: Yeah, by the way, Hugh, Florida could have three presidential candidates because Senators Marco Rubio and Rick Scott and Governor Ron DeSantis, they're all eyeing a presidential race. So Rick Scott, as you know, and as I write in In Trump's Shadow, I have a conflict of interest in that my my wife is his chief fundraiser, along with her business partner and works for him at the National Republican Senatorial Committee. If not for that, he might have had his own chapter in the book because of the work he has put in and the interest he has in 2024. And the thing about Rick Scott is that he doesn't have outwardly much of a personality. I mean, look, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. He's not very charismatic he doesn't come off as particularly endearing in a room, in a crowd. Um, and sometimes when he's taking questions from reporters, he can seem a little socially awkward. But in a room, one-on-one or with a crowd that's in a you know small to medium-sized room, he simply kills it. People come away with him very impressed, and particularly one-on-one with his follow-up. I mean he has so many relationships oh, across yes. the country – People swear by him. And there was one story that I was talking to somebody in Florida for in Trump's shadow. I didn't know they had any connection to Rick Scott because I was really talking to this this Republican source about Marco Rubio and Scott came up and and he told me, you know, I once got a thank you note from Rick Scott apologizing for the fact that the formal thank you note for the event that I went to didn't arrive soon and you know, soon enough. Absolutely. So I ended yeah. up with two notes, one Thanking me for coming to the event and one apologizing for the fact that the note took so long. Oh, he's and got that, one of the, in a nutshell. He's got, got one of those him. George
1: H. W. Bush disciplines about contacting people and staying in touch with them and getting a meal. Once you know, once you've broken bread with someone, it's very hard to, to shoot him in the back. You might have to shoot him in the front, right? But you're not gonna yes. you're not gonna hit him from behind. I'm never gonna clip any of these people that I've sat down with and. And I'm going to not even accidentally am I going to clip anyone that I've sat down with and chatted about. You know, I'm I'm least interested of all in the book about your conversation with Trump, uh, because there are lots (laughs) of conversations with Trump. But I'm glad he gave you a chance to talk. But I I am very fascinated. I want to talk about Rubio and Haley as well, uh, because they um, they're kind of I have a middle lane, a top tier one and a tier one A. And my tier one is Cotton, Pompeo, DeSantis, and um, Tim Scott. In tier 1A, I've got Rick Scott, Rubio, Haley, and above the tiers is President Trump. And Ted Cruz is in 1A. People who have either lost to Trump before or have gotten on his bad side before or dinged up by 2016 can't be in tier one And and that's where if you've got if you have past conflicts, some of the Trump faction of the party just will never forgive you. Right. Uh, I I loved I'll I'll take that back in your conversation with the president. You brought up, quote, Lion Ted, and he wanted to (laughs) walk that back. I was fascinated by that. He did it real quickly. Right. Am I remembering it correctly?
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, you know, he told me and this was true that the day before that I sat down with him at Mar-a-Lago, Ted Cruz had shown up there and they had dinner. And Ted Cruz posted a the picture on on Twitter and presidents in great spirits, blah blah blah, and 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 the, and Donald Trump brought this up to me. The former president brought it up to me, and I said, "So no, no more lying, Ted." He's like, "Oh no, 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 we're great. You know, we just had that one little run in, but but Ted's great." And he's like, "You know, he wants my endorsement. Can you believe he's here? He's not even running in 2016." And when the subject of Marco Rubio came up, I said, "So what about little Marco?" He's like, "No, no, no." And he said he said very nice things of defending me in the Russia investigation. So we're square. Now, he did tell me that if his daughter, Ivanka Trump, had wanted to run for Senate in Florida in so many words, he told me I would have supported her. She would have been great. So maybe, you know, Rubio uh, lucked out there as I I write in that chapter. But um, he's not angry at them anymore. So if he doesn't run and they run, how voters react to those two will be one thing. But I don't think Trump is any longer out to get them. Of course, you never know what you say in the heat of a campaign that gets him to say, "Up oh, there they go again. Never see, mind. So like them. But he's they're right sort of absolved.
1: They've been pardoned yes. for being anti-Trump. Yes. But Nikki Haley and Mike Pence have not been pardoned for being anti-Trump. The other people have never been. No, in
2: no. And I asked the former president, um, I asked President Trump, I said, sir, Mike Pence was loyal to you. He took heat. For, I mean, he more than anybody else never gave you a reason to doubt him. I said, look, maybe you don't like the way he handled the certification on January 6th, but you called him a coward. You know, that's a hit on somebody's character, Hugh. You can be wrong. You can be a jerk. When you call somebody a coward, that's a character hit. And I said, why, why would you do that after you know how loyal he was to you? And the truth is he— He's a person, you know, Republicans think of him as a person of high character. He hasn't given them any reason to think otherwise as far as they're concerned. And at first he said, no, 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 no. You know, I like Mike and Mike's great. Uh, But then he went back to the old line, you know, well, he should have had the courage to throw those electoral college votes out. So he just won't let that go. And obviously with Nikki Haley, it's funny. I think he's so amused and enjoying Nikki Haley's predicament right now. And, And she's not in as much trouble as she might appear to be. With Republicans, she's just not doing as well as she once was that he didn't even really take a shot at her. He just said, oh, yeah, she wanted to meet with me. I didn't care. You know, the base is really angry with her. It was interesting. Yeah. He wouldn't even really take a real dig at her. He well, that's because said, Ambassador oh, yeah, Haley,
1: Haley, Ambassador Haley can't rehab without President Trump. Uh, and so she well, needs, it's,
2: it's she, difficult. It's difficult yeah. because he took a. she took a made a per, she criticized him personally. He takes umbrage to that. So do a lot of his supporters. Yeah. She's trying to figure that out.
1: Okay, let's let's go back and I, I covered with you on Monday. You you did a brief rundown of shout outs to people you can't cover deeply. Ambassador O'Brien, you got it exactly right. The LDS community likes a candidate of their own. If you're going towards a brokered convention, he'll go play in the caucuses and in American i so this, I guess I don't know this. American Samoa, Guam, pick up Utah, add Wyoming and Arizona and have a have a if if it becomes Ollie Ollie Infree. Uh, you were right about um, Chris Christie is, is he's just going to be in there. I've got his new book on the bedstand. Uh I, well, I got home yep. to read Chris Christie's new book. So you write a book when you're running for president. But the person you ID'd but didn't spend enough time on, because I really need to know more. I've, I've had dinner with Tim Scott. I know Tim Scott a little bit. Um, he's a mysterious man to me. Uh, I don't think it matters anymore that you're a single guy. Um, and you do in your book. You say that it is. Uh, I just find him so winsome absolutely winsome that he and and Mike Pompeo will compete for the heart of the evangelical vote because they are both honest to God evangelicals.
2: (laughs) Yeah, um, I think that's that's very probable. Um, Tim Scott is somebody that initially was going to sneak up on the field. In reporting in Trump's shadow, I was told I should take a look at Senator Scott from South Carolina because he was interested in running for president. And for various reasons, I could just never wrap my arms around enough to do more than I did in the book, which was very little. Uh, But what has happened since my reporting uh, for the book, um, or as my reporting for the book was wrapping up, is that he delivers a speech at the Republican Convention in 2020, which was a virtual convention, delivered one of the most effective speeches on Trump's behalf of the entire convention. He then gives the rebuttal to President Biden's first uh, addressed to a joint session of Congress, essentially a State of the Union, also goes over very well. And after the third fundraising quarter of this year, we found out he raised another $8.3 million. I think he can roll into a 2024 campaign with as much as $20 million on hand, because he won't need that much to win reelection in South Carolina next year. Um, and so the question is, and, and by the way, I did learn, and I read this in the book, that his team over the past few years has been sending fundraising solicitations digitally into key early states, New Hampshire, Iowa. um, Obviously, he's from South Carolina. doesn't need a name ID there. They were trying to, to increase his name ID in these key early primary states and caucus states. And so they were targeting voters there. But now you really have a figure who's much more nationally known. He's been working on police reform legislation through two administrations, one Republican, one Democrat. So there's a lot of substance there. There's a lot of personal charisma there. The question is going to be, can he put together a good team? These are important in presidential campaigns because of all of the incoming fire you take. I think Donald Trump, uh, President Trump is unique in that he really didn't need as much as other people. And we know what those why that is. I think generally you still need that sort of thing. You do. You you know, the other. And I think the other question is, will it hurt him in terms of connecting with voters? that he is not married and does not have children. We have not had a president with no children that is not married, I believe, and I, I write this in the book, I looked it up, can, I think right? since the 19th century. Yeah, it's and I think it's it. because it's a way for everybody, you know, when you're a parent, Hugh, and my kids are not, my boys are nine and six, but the minute you're a parent, it, it's a way to automatically say, well, I, I don't know if I like what you say or how you say it, or I don't know if I agree with you or disagree with you, but we have one thing in common that's the most important things in our lives, and even with in 2016, I remember when Hillary Clinton in one of those debates was, you know, when they they force you to say something nice at the end of the debate, and Hillary Clinton said that that uh, President Trump's uh, children are also accomplished and well mannered and and nice people. Uh, obviously, Democrats will have a different view of that all these years later. But it's a way for everybody to identify with you and believe that you know what they're going through. And so I think it is a a liability, but it doesn't mean it can't be overcome. But I think it's a challenge.
1: Well, let's conclude this by talking a little bit about the mechanics of what's going to happen. I've been urging Rhonda McDaniel to get these people together on a stage early and often. And you don't have to get them all. It doesn't have to be a debate. Just have leadership forums. I'm going to go do a debate in Ohio on Sunday night. Uh, with with six. That's going to be fascinating. Oh, it is. I'm I'm really, they're they're all different shades of Donald Trump, right? They're all, it's a very interesting group of people. So, and they're all got financing. So it's kind of a preview of coming attractions. The 2022 Ohio GOP primary is in Trump country for Trump votes. (laughs) So it's a preview of 2024. But the more these people talk, the more we're going to handle on them. I just got to ask you, why do you think some do a lot of talk radio, especially this show, and some don't do much and you have to hunt them? What's the calculation they're making?
2: Thank you. I I don't know for a fact. What I will tell you is over the years, there are politicians who will take all questions from all comers and there are politicians who are much more circumspect regarding who they take questions from. And then I think there's the old school, and the new school. You know, Trump is sort of the new school, the new, new famous school. and well-known as he was. I mean, he would take questions from everybody, whether he hated them or he liked them. they, you know, he'd take questions from people he thought treated him unfairly and complain about it, but he'd still take their questions. And then there's the old school, which is you don't want to give out too much of yourself too often because then it's like it's no longer a commodity. You lose you lose value. Right. That is the old school of how presidents react act in office. But it's also the old school of how politicians run for office. And I just think it's what politicians are comfortable with. You know, people, I think, assume that because you're an elected official, you love to raise money and you love to be on camera and you love to shake hands. Well, I got news for you. Like a lot of uh, politicians, left and right, some of them, they hate these things. They hate, believe it or not, they hate raising money. I mean, my wife is a fundraiser. And over her 20 years in fundraising, uh, this isn't true of clients she has today, but at times she's advised clients that didn't want to make calls. You know, so television shows that portray politicians as money hungry fundraisers get it wrong. A lot of them hate doing this or some hate doing it, but they'll do it because they want to win. I remember in 2006 um, when Democrats won control of the House and the Senate, I asked an aide to Chuck Schumer, then who was chairman of the DSCC. Well, he must love fundraising. I mean, he's he's doing great. And they told me, no, he hates it, but he wants to win. So he'll do it just for that. So so politicians are just regular people like you and me. They're just in a, a media centric industry, uh, but they have the same weaknesses, the same challenges. And, and they don't always just like anybody else who goes to work and you like part of your job but not the other part. Uh, it's no different. And so I think that's why some will come on your show and talk to me more readily than they will talk to others.
1: I'll tell you the exhaustion factor. I was with Secretary Pompeo last week, the Architect of Peace Award. He and Robert O'Brien received at the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda. So I saw him on, on Thursday and I followed his schedule on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday to make sure everything worked out at the library. And uh, if you're running for president or you're just keeping up a public appearance like, like all of these people are, if you're keeping your options open, the, the grind, oh my gosh, the grind. Rick Scott, if he ever gets to bed before 11 or gets to sleep in his own bed, uh, it's like Kevin McCarthy had probably been home in six months. It is all-consuming. Yeah, I, I I hate that. I just, I just love being quarantined. You know, that was good for me. I hate going out and doing that stuff. So I just think you've got your finger on the pulse. So here is the question, the one that most important is, if Donald Trump gets in, and we're not going to know until the day he decides to get in, and that could be the day before the filing deadline in New Hampshire, Do the people who have done all this work get out or do they go up against them?
2: Well, some inevitably will get out, but not everybody will. And it's interesting, the signaling that I am getting right. So when I interviewed uh, Secretary Pompeo uh, for In Trump's Shadow, the companion podcast to the book, I asked him at the very end of our interview, I said, look, I know you're not going to break news on my podcast as much as I would love it and tell me you're running or not running in 2024, but I said, tell me this, if President Trump runs, does it automatically mean you will not? And he would not say that Trump running precludes him from running. And what he told me is, is this, if you believe that you should be president, that you have something to offer, you need to believe that irrespective of whoever else is running. Otherwise you have no business running. And that is very true. I know where President Trump is in the polling, and I think the polling is accurate by and large. Will he be as strong 18 months from now, two years from now? Who knows? But I wouldn't doubt that he would be. Uh, He may not be, but he very well could be. But if you are somebody who thinks you should be president, if you are already deciding today, well, I'm not running. If Trump runs, then you really shouldn't run because voters will never believe that you have what it takes Uh, The other interesting signal I got was from uh, people surrounding Vice President Mike Pence, the former vice president. Um, I was asking simple questions like, look, if if President Trump decided to select uh, Mike Pence as his running mate again, would Pence do it? And, you know, the signals I got was, yes, this is something he would be interested in doing again. But by the way, he hasn't decided that he's not running for president simply because President Trump is running Now, I know people will say, oh, but he can't win. But the point in this isn't whether he can win or not. And I'm not disputing any contention here. The point is, what is in their head and how committed are they? There are a lot of these Republicans that have been eyeing 2024 for more than five years and have been preparing for a campaign that are running the turnstiles at the Des Moines Airport and the Manchester, New Hampshire Airport ragged and probably soon to be Charleston, South Carolina that are not slowing down and will get in the race, and then at which point Trump makes his decision, they will make their own calculation, probably based on their conviction, their opinion of him, how old they are, how much life they have left in them. You know, I can imagine if you're 65, approaching 70, and this is your shot, because a lot of times you don't run at 75 or do what Joe Biden did. This is your shot, so you run, and if you run for president, you have a better chance of being selected vice president or, or obtaining a plum cabinet position. So if this is a leadership uh, platform that you believe in and you believe you have something for the country to offer and you're ambitious, you're not gonna slow down. And that I'll be interested you to see this. Did they learn anything from 2016? Because one of the biggest liabilities they had in 2016 was that they did not uh, go at the front runner, President Trump. What did they do? They tried to kill Rubio or kill Jeb or kill Cruz. You if if Trump is the big dog and you're in the race, the only way to tell voters that you should be the big dog is to go after the big dog himself. Will it turn off Republican voters? Maybe. Oh, well, that's the way it goes. But it's not going to work any other way. That's one of the reasons Trump did so well. He didn't care. He went after everybody. He, he, He looked around the room and said, who's the biggest name here? And he would attack them. Wait, you're a former Republican president. I don't care. I'm going after you, too. We can argue about how statesman like that is, whether it's good for the country, the party. These are all interesting conversations. But what voters want to see is that you are willing, especially on the Republican side, is that you're willing to fight and that you're not afraid. And that's the lesson they should have taken away from the last five years, at least in the setting of a Republican primary. And that's what I discover in in Trump's shadow.
1: Uh, David, it's a terrific book. Well done. Congratulations. We'll continue the conversation weeks ahead. It's doing very well, and it will continue to do well. You beat beat everyone out of the gate. And to the winner, to the first mover in most spaces go the spoils. Congratulations, David Drucker on In Trump's Shadow. Thank you, Hugh. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember, to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.